0: Very few stories are legitimately overnight success. Like they just aren't. They may look like it, but most of the time there's been years of working really hard. It took every every learned experience, every mistake, every show they've ever done to make me prepared enough to do Festival Hall or, or to do Roundhouse. Roundhouse was legitimately probably the best show I've ever played in my career. It's taken every single experience to be remotely prepared for that. I mean, there was nights that were just... You couldn't even, like, nights where I'd be playing, and it would start raining, and I was, like, kind of undercover, but not undercover, and I was just being a madman, would just keep playing. I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to stop playing for this weather. i would keep playing, keep playing. And I'm talking one night, people ran out of the cafe and started dancing in the rain. You think I'm joking, like it's a scene from a movie. And we had nights where there'd be, like, 100 people in the car park outside a cafe, dancing and going absolutely wild and singing at the top of their lungs.
1: That's Ziggy Alberts. And this... And this. the Proof Podcast Howdy friends, what's going on? I hope you've been well. Here we are again, another week, another episode. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of the Plant Proof Podcast, qualified physiotherapist, and I'm currently finishing my Masters in Nutrition. Each week on this show, I sit down with super cool folks from all walks of lives, from all over the world, doctors, nutritionists, athletes, people who have overcome chronic illness, et cetera, to have conversations that can help us become more mindful and conscious of the way that we live. This week's guest is Australian musician Ziggy Alberts. If you follow my stories on Instagram, you will know I'm a huge fan of Ziggy's work. I've been listening to his music for years and it's been a real privilege to watch him grow from afar. He's the perfect example of someone who is set on using their growing platform and reach to really better the world. And while he no doubt has an incredible singing voice, I think his voice and overall message off stage is just as powerful. So I'm sure you're going to love his story and this episode. Time to hand things over to Ziggy Alberts. Friends, I'll see you on the other
2: side. Do you see the ways that we're grown apart? I don't like it at all. Do you see the ways that we're going to far? Drifting off of our course. And do you see the ways that we, that plastic, cover the ocean like snow? But snow it always melts with the seasons, change in the summer, up the months go water. One was before. Oh One
1: One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done. So, we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal or optimal. I've checked InsideTracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time get 20 percent off the entire inside tracker store to get started go to insidetracker.com forward slash simon for this exclusive offer that's insidetracker.com forward slash simon if you're a long-time listener of this show you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet, two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The essential aid contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 mg of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends.
2: Siggy Alberts, sure let's
1: do this. Good. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. How are you today? Yeah, good, good, mate. It's, uh, it's awesome to have you here in, in Bondi and to be able to finally connect to, to record this podcast. It's one that I've, I've been wanting to to do for a while now, so thank you for coming. No, thank you for your patience. It's been an absolutely turbulent several months with this
0: tour coming to an end just a couple of weeks ago, and I'm off to Europe in a week, yeah, Monday, wow. the next Monday coming. So to do this is um, a really sweet timing. because I won't be back in the country for four months. Non-stop. So how, how many shows did you just do? We did 37 across New Zealand and Australia. Uh, I
1: think it was 37 in the end. Wow. What, what was that experience like? I mean, before that, how much touring or how many shows had you just sort of done in a row? Well, touring is a really interesting one because there's certainly times where you'll do more
0: than 37 shows. Like there was one tour I did, which I would not do again. It was like 52 shows, and that was five months of touring, and it was just grueling, and I wouldn't do that again. But it really depends on the flow of your team and how many rows, you know, how many shows you're doing in a row, how many nights off you have in between those shows. It's kind of a process of there's so many so many different factors that affect if those three weekends, you know, there's three weekends we have three shows in a row. If they're hard, there's so much around transit, flight. The issues you face at shows, um, how your health is. And so if you have a good little pattern and good routine, this tour was was undoubtedly one of the best. Like I came off tour and I wasn't dreading being on tour again. It was kind of like, okay, I need a bit of a rest, but I'm excited to tour, which is good because I have a lot yeah, of touring yeah. ahead of me.
1: And I guess that's a, a credit to which you just sort of spoke to, but your whole team and how everything came together, which later on in this conversation, I want to talk a lot about what it means to be an independent musician. But just sort of top line, you know, what was what were the logistics like of organizing all of these shows, you know, essentially yourself you know, your family?
0: Oh, I mean, top line, again, we'll get into it later, but it's the logistics are huge for, for you to come out and do a show by yourself, you know, as an independent musician and being a solo artist on top of it, for you to come and do a show by yourself in some of the sizes we were doing. It's internal teamwork, it's tour teamwork, it's third party, whether that be the security companies who are there. The lighting people that you bring in for particular shows, it's like to get one person on stage, I can't imagine trying to get more. Getting one person on stage is hard enough.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure you're you're now, you know, much, much better equipped, I guess, as a group going forward for for future touring, having done 34 odd shows.
0: Absolutely. You just you're well and a well-oiled machine in in terms of your there's less and less surprises, which is really good. You see more and more things and you kind of start to learn the questions that you need to ask. And after, like you said, after you know, the thirty plus shows we just did you you are unbelievably prepared comparatively, you know, compared to even the first five shows you do, the next five shows you learn more. And by the last five shows, we just learn as much as you possibly can, ever on tour. So it's a constant learning experience, but that's what makes it exciting.
1: And was there in terms of challenges, you know, just in that previous touring that you did was there any just like rip your hair out moments where you as a team you're like god how are we going to handle this yes oh my goodness one like i'll just
0: touch on one because there was several but let's just say there was one in a particular previous tour in australia where we the van the van got crashed and the van had everything and when i say everything i mean like 15 surfboards three tents eight hike mats six speakers two subs all the merch six guitars all of our sleeping bags, all of our personal stuff, you know, have many wetsuits, like it was it was packed to the absolute from a seven meter van kind of thing, right? And when we yeah, when the vehicle got crashed, you know, two o'clock in the morning by no one's fault, but when that happened and the vehicle essentially written off, which was also my home ad, and you've still got, you know, I don't know, ten shows to go. And it just been one of those tours. We kind of looked at each other and just like looked up at the skies. I'm like, what?
1: So how did how did the van crash?
0: So it was a late evening on in the southwest, and when you are driving, you just pretty much should just avoid driving during the, in the southwest late at night. And so, I managed to really fantastically um, have a Roo jump out, and it just, it just you just get blindsided in terms of you. There's no, there's no amount of attention that you can avoid some of those situations. And when that happened, I mean, luckily the car could get driven enough to be off the road, so to speak. But after that, it was. Um, look, it was the whole front of the car got replaced kind of thing. And it certainly wasn't getting replaced in the amount of time we had left. And so you start, and we're driving back to Perth, we're getting another van, but are bringing their cars up from different spots. So we can just get the amount of gear we had. It took three separate vehicles to literally get it from A to B from the, where we, where the van stopped, you know? Yeah, it was wow. like that, that well strategically packed. It was unbelievable, but we got through it. And I think, there is only so much you can take away from those situations. There's some very obvious hiccups that have happened across various tourings and different processes now that are in place. And some of that's just experience. Some of that's the amount of people we have on a tour. More isn't necessarily always better, but the quality of each person's role, how much they get to just focus on that and be dedicated to that, opposed to being, you know, a handyman in every different place. But I think with some of those moments, you just do have to just accept it and, and try and laugh where you can and get some sleep and move on.
1: Yeah. So, so. Getting from show to show, is it is it all done by car, like, or you know you're playing in, in Sydney and in Melbourne and everywhere? Were, were there also flights happening as well? So on the last tour, we drove from Sunshine Coast
0: to Adelaide. So we did that drive and did all a you know, majority of the shows along that along that period of time. And the last five shows, just simply by logistics, we did fly the last five shows. So you have a a balance of both. It is in Australia fairly easy to fly with music gear because of like particularly as a musician, as an Australian musician, because there's an association that will help you with your bags um, through, you know, a certain flight company. And so that's like incredible. But as for Europe um, coming up, will be the first time we have a sleeper bus, a bus with bunk beds where we're not flying or driving ourselves internally. And I think that's going to be a game changer because last time um, my videographer and I we were the only two members old enough on the team to be able to allowed to drive. Yeah, wow. And so we were so driving, doing everything. we were driving from, you know, like I remember one drive from Berlin to some out, you know, out there town in France. And that was like a 14 hour day kind of thing. And you're doing that and playing shows. And so it just wasn't a remotely sustainable model. And that's sometimes a luxury you cannot afford is that you have to do that grind. But when you now get the sleeper bus or so when you get the team that, that where each person is really great in their role and really cares about their role. You appreciate it so much. yeah, right?
1: And and I guess it allows you to concentrate and put your energy into, into your performances.
0: Absolutely. That's
1: something that I probably didn't value
0: enough. I definitely feel, was really proud of almost like my busking, I would say, like working in class, like do everything myself or do everything with the people I tour with really liked, didn't like, uh, ever want to be in like a inverted commas artist position where you walk up on stage but you actually talk about you have to grow up a bit and become a little more mature, mature it's not possible to try and help out on all those levels and put on a good show every night particularly at these sizes now it's just simply it's just not necessarily in a human being
1: <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean and some of these the uh Festival Hall we played at yep. in Melbourne was like it was like 5000 people it was,
0: yeah, five and a half thousand people. It was by <laughs> the close to two times as big a show as I've ever done before, you know. And that takes, you know, that takes...
1: What did that feel like when you first walked? Can you remember we're first walking out onto that stage in front of five, five and a half thousand people? I had a really good
0: pre-show like in terms of you have your little rituals, so to speak, like things that you do that, you know, make you feel comfortable for a show. And I just legitimately that night drank so much tea, just sat around and talked with kind of old friends and my sister was there and we just... I had literally almost had like a tea party, which was hilarious. And I remember being calm, calm, calm. And I got like three meters out from the stage, and I could hear it. I was walking, walking, and then my heart rate just was like, doo-dum, 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 doo-dum. and I was, I was like, oh gosh, here we go. And that was <laughs> it. It's almost it's an amount of people though. It's legitimately almost unfathomable for one person to take it in. Like I walked off stage, and the whole team was just. Crying, laughing, jumping around, like just unbelievably stoked, and I kind of walked off stage and was like, "So it went good, right? Okay, like it, it was so there's so much, and you know, if you imagine like goodness me, like sensory-wise, as like an individual as a human being, sensory-wise to try and take on five and a half thousand people, that's it's overwhelming. It just you just just there with your guitar and you know, just singing with there with you and your guitar, completely solo on stage, and that's it's such an intense and such a rewarding experience. Would I say it's like innately relaxing? It's not, but that's not to say it isn't incredibly valuable. It's just there's so much going on. It's a really intense experience. You're not sitting back on stage, really relaxed. You're kind of trying to, and it's if you can imagine festival halls, almost 270 degrees of people, and it's surprisingly intimate. The setting itself for that many people is you can almost see everybody. But the people of Melbourne and that particular show, like it was just, it was as unified and as intimate a big show I've ever played you know it was as good as anything I've ever done quality wise which is what you're really scared about when it gets to these bigger numbers is will you maintain the quality of experience for yourself and for the crowd and the answer was in Melbourne was yes and if not it was a more of an elated experience than ever which when there's unity with that many people that's pretty much like that's what's a good show for me
1: and the the Europe trip coming up is that going to be in front of crowds of a similar sort of size to that
0: not as big as Festival Hall, but, I mean, we looked, at, we looked at the stats today and this tour is going to be three times the amount of people to what we did last time in yeah, Europe, wow. which, is, which is a lot. That's a, that's a huge growth. And some of the shows, much like Australia, I played a show in Yellinger that was 100 people, which is really cool because this is all-ages show and you've got families there and it was like a really sweet, truly intimate show in an old wooden kind of shack kind of thing. And then playing shows like Festival Hall to 500,000 people had a really great, fantastic range. Of these shows, and Europe's much the same. There'll be some shows I think are about 180 people, and then probably Amsterdam and London are the biggest, and about 1500 cap, which that's still to me like it doesn't matter when that's why I try and say about a festival hall, for example, you cannot almost take on how big it is because at the time it's just so overwhelming. But you know, so 1500 people is still, in my opinion, a big show, and to play them internationally, to play. 1500 people in london or in amsterdam and be sold out and to play similar numbers through germany that's
1: yeah that's huge
0: that's amazing you know some artists will you never see that in their whole careers and here i am at 24 and i get to do that in the coming months like that's pretty incredible
1: i want to go through sort of how you've actually landed in this place and then we'll come back to the music and and talk about you know sort of what inspires you in terms of the the lyrics and writing side of things but you're happy to to wind back the clock please so where did you grow up? What was life like as a as a family and as a kid? what were your hobbies and interests and things like that
0: so i I grew up on the Sunshine Coast in queensland it was where i was where I was born, and there was a little town kind of just just south of Maruchi River where I grew up near Malolabar and that was where I was born uh, home birth by the beach kind of thing and grew up homeschooled actually uh, and didn't see inside a classroom until I was thirteen and So I grew up in a big family where kind of surfing and skating and martial arts and school were kind of all part of it. And from there, we moved to another little town just near Maruchidor. It was the kind of closest place. And I stayed there until I graduated. I went to school, got my marks, did my maths and science, thought I was going to maybe do dentistry or engineering or something with my my grades. And I'm still on a gap year, I think. Might be seven gap years in so far. (laughs) Haven't gone back. Um, And... Picked up a guitar when I graduated.
1: Wow. So you picked up a guitar at what? how, how old were you? I was
0: 16 when I first started playing guitar.
1: So wow. that's now, that's, if my math serves me, I think that's eight years ago. Wow. That's that's not very long, is it? I mean, particularly considering where you are now. Yes. Yeah.
0: It, it's really flown by. And I think the only thing that I had a head start on was I was really into creative writing. From about 13, I was doing some freelance journalism in various you know local surf magazines that's kind of i was really into writing and that's what my parents saw and once i'd done my studies they were kind of like hey here's they bought me a guitar and i was like thank you but i'm not planning to be a musician it was like a thank you but i don't know how to fully appreciate this because okay so it was it was just by pure chance that they pretty much yeah guitar. and being a lefty that was you know it was particular it wasn't i couldn't pick up right-handed guitars and play as soon as i picked up i played them like a left and so left-handed guitarist um and my parents bought me this left-handed guitar and from there the first year I mainly I mean but far out probably within probably within the year I put out an EP which one song I still play, like I play as an encore in at Festival Hall. You know, there's a song called Gone that I wrote that I put on that that was one of the first songs I wrote at 17 years old. And um
1: so during that first year when you were gifted the guitar and you started playing did you start singing at the same time
0: yeah it just came i learned how to play stuff literally off youtube primarily because my little brother played guitar my dad played guitar but they didn't my dad didn't teach me too much because he was like look i didn't learn properly i just learned by ear and i want you to learn properly so here i went and did the exact same thing um didn't (laughs) learn properly but it just came really naturally that i would write because of my writing background would actually write my own songs that's something i was really interested in doing and Hilariously, actually, that's when I first came to Bondi was I was interning at a surf mag called Stab Mag doing writing. Is when no I way. first came to...
1: The, yeah. the, one of the guys at Stab, he, we're, we're in my uh, apartment now in Bondi. He, he was living just here in number Is that six. Right?
0: Okay, there you go. Yeah, okay. Small world, yeah. And so that's when I first came here and that was the same time. It was really a really particular time in my life because I went from being in school to graduating, working a music bar, obviously not of age but working music bar collecting glasses for cash and getting a guitar pursuing more of my creative writing in the form of freelance journalism and surf you know surf journalism and there just was this time of real i think inspiration particularly with the music bar because i got to see every night these people doing doing it and it kind of instilled something in me i think and i worked really hard that year and was working a cafe job at the same time as working the bar and Slowly but surely, I I quit the bar just because honestly, it's not good to be up that late every night, particularly at that sort of age. I really wish I slept more. I always wish I sleep more. But at that age at 17, I really should have slept more and I kind of got to a point was like, well, I can work this cafe job and I'll try and get some shows, some little local cafe shows. And I was never prepared, mad. I was never remotely at a level where I should have been.
1: Where obviously, though, people around you, like friends and family, like with telling you you've got natural talent you can do something with this oh I think most
0: importantly my parents so I did that for the first couple of years I'd like play cafes do a tiny bit of busking but more on the Sunshine Coast was playing different cafes and and working and working cafe making coffee uh, and I remember I was it was early 2013 could have been yeah when I when I last worked a job employed for somebody else that was at that point I remember the morning that I, I quit. And I just thought, I'm just going to somehow do this. And my parents really supportive in the way they said, well, got no mortgage, you got no kids, you got a car that runs. I had a Corolla at the time, this little Toyota Corolla, 1.8 liters unleaded, uh, Tiffany was the name. And <laughs> so therefore I had freedom and I had a chance to kind of go do it. And they're like, why, why wouldn't you? And so I just put it on the line Jumped at it. and just was said to myself, I'm just going to somehow make that work. And I think that's something I'd really... Encourage you know other people, young and old, to do like when you put yourself in that corner and you're like, I've just got to make money to survive now, and there's no, there was no safety net. It was just
1: do it. Do you think the confidence in yourself and and also your parents' encouragement, like how much of and, and teaching yourself how to play, you know, rather organically, do you attribute any of that to? Homeschooling and sort of this, you know, unschooling, I guess it's called, and the some of the benefits associated with learning in that environment and learning a different way, I guess. Yeah, it's, I think
0: by homeschooling, I'd say that I wouldn't have necessarily developed my like identity or willingness to be different. I wouldn't have been so comfortable about it if I wasn't homeschooled. I think by the time I went to school at 13, I already had, you know, I was already doing some creative writing stuff. I was doing, you know, competing in surf comps. I was doing all these different sort of things. I certainly wasn't running the mill and knew I was a bit of a weirdo, but that's kind of been like a given since day dot as soon as I could comprehend that. But by the time I went to school at 13, I think particularly as a young male, I'd already had some form of like what was up and down for me, what what was important to me, what wasn't important to me. And that's really valuable. I really say hats off to boys and girls who from such young age are out of the home, you know, going to school. It shows you the resilience of human beings, I think, because I wouldn't have thrived. That wouldn't have been my thriving place, I don't truly believe. And so by being homeschooled, having that nurturing environment, a good family upbringing, good connection to my parents, and to the contrary of many popular stigmas, which are as correct as most, I was in surf comps, I was doing martial arts, I was in skate comps. That's one of the myths, right, about like the social Social uh, I, mean, aspects. I mean, it's like, it's valid in the sense that if people put their, if parents put their pre-learned or their experiences onto their children, but you can do that as a school, someone who's been through school as a parent and been through a, a normal education or otherwise. And I mean, if, if anything, alternate education is just going to open up for improvement to all education. And that's what we should look for, you know, the best opportunity for young people to learn. And that definitely being homeschooled and just I think probably the, just having the sort of parents that I had primarily was definitely gave me a huge a hugely advantageous base to go and do what I did and music's one of the few things and I say this to people to friends when they ask like, music's one of the few things where it wasn't about being the best I just went and gave everything I had to it I certainly wasn't the best particularly at start I remember like I was I was like I said very unprepared for a lot of situations I was always having to do my absolute best and I could just scrape through where I was at so to speak like I just would do the show justice and that's been a very that makes you grow really quickly when you're always on that cusp of you just were prepared enough and you just pulled it off and then you you get to that new level and just like anything you'd know as well um, with even with what you're doing here it just takes the hours and taking that chance and practice and practice.
1: And time, practice. nothing, you, you can't, you can't beat the time that you invest into whatever your craft is, right? If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by InsideTracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan And create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com/simon. That's insidetracker.com/simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Five to nine shows a
0: week was what I did. I would, I'd start on the Sunshine Coast like a Monday and maybe I'd drive to Byron. I'd do like a Tuesday and a Wednesday at a cafe, kind of like six till nine. Sometimes yeah, so you were grinding. Yeah, and then I would go on Wednesday, you know, maybe I would play a Gold Coast kind of busking gig and maybe I would be as silly to play on the Sunshine Coast on a Thursday because there was at the local bar, there was like a an afternoon drinks thing. So I'd play that session for a couple of hours and maybe I would – I mean, I remember I remember playing a busking show from, you know, 7 to 10 or something like that on the street, at on Lawson Street at Mocha Cafe in Byron. And I remember sleeping, waking up and being – Parked at the market because they, the road would get closed off. So being parked at a market on the Gold Coast at like six am the next morning, trying to sleep in the car to then play the market show at nine o'clock. And then sometimes I would even drive back and play an afternoon busking gig. I was just—I was an idiot. I was well,
1: hell bent. Was it the, was the drive behind becoming a better artist, or was it money? Or at, at that stage, why were you doing so many shows, or, or were you? Was it the enjoyment of the actual show?
0: That's a, that's a really good question. And that's something that I've definitely looked back on and gone at the time. What was I, (laughs) what was I thinking? It's certainly, I think it's when you are extending yourself regularly and extending yourself in ways that are so challenging, but so rewarding. It's addictive. I think here I'd done, I'd done work. That was just grind. I'd done work. At least when I grinded on this, it was like, I saw, I saw opportunity. I was as well, having these incredible experiences with people, you start to when you start to release a CD, and all of a sudden, people might be like singing singing some of the words or saying that song. I really connected with something in that song, and so all of a sudden, there's like this. You're creating moments for people, and that's so so bloody rewarding. And I mean, I was still still at the time I was surfing a lot. Like I had an incredible amount of freedom, and then you know, I bought a van. start started 2014. I bought my first van, and I was living out of that van. And so, therefore, like it was. I could play two shows a day and still surf for four hours. Like I was just a madman, but living the dream. I had, I had I had everything I could have possibly wanted. I thought I was living the best life. That was like I'm playing music for hours and hours per day. I can sustain myself on this and I get time to surf. It was like <laughs> it was that. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Good living was. And so that being really content with that, it was. I mean, now there's a lot more of a plan, but I was truly, truly happy playing to twenty or thirty people. I thought that was. Just the best thing that could happen,
1: and I I mean, I guess playing to some of those smaller crowds over time—it's a great way to practice in front of small, small, small sort of crowds rather than jumping straight to to bigger events. But absolutely, have you ever had you know formal lessons, or are you still self-taught to this day?
0: The most formal lessons I've had actually of late, in regards to like vocal longevity, because. I again have had some warm ups, but nothing formal. And so this was this last year was the first time I worked with a vocal trainer. And for some part, it was to see if I could improve the way I was singing. But mostly was for maintenance. It was about can I because you you lose your voice, you do your voice does get sore. And so and you and now I'm you know twenty twenty five this year. And this is legitimately from about this point onwards to thirties when people have their vocal injuries. It's kinda of like that hotspot zone for anybody you've seen that's had a vocal surgery, a vocal injury, it's this time coming up now. And so I definitely took it upon myself to go, how can I do the best for the best for my vocals, you know, long term. But when it came to learning about how to sing correctly, it really did my head in. It hundred percent like I had to stop and go, okay, I'm actually not going down that path because it was taking away from what was a lot of fun about singing. That's not discrediting her work who I was, the lady I was working with because her vocal warm ups and warm downs, like the actual, those practicalities, I use them like pretty much every day on tour, sometimes twice a day. I'm doing her, her exercises and they are like, they've not only improved my singing, they've made my voice so much more comfortable on tour. But as for, I learned really quickly last year, you know, late last year, I was like, wow, like I'm never, I never want to get a guitar lesson. I never want to get another vocal lesson because it, it kind of gave me a structure of what's right and what's wrong. And I've never had that. And that's what I think has been a strength. Is You
1: started to sort of doubt. Not it, doubt.
0: Not doubt in a sense. Just I literally was like every small note that I sang was more about how I was delivering it or where I was delivering it from became a real focus. And I get really like, I really grit my teeth into that stuff and want to do the best job I can. And it just was taking away from the naturalness and I guess what has been unorthodox and very created like a unique sound for me, what's made me my own artist is not being delivering songs the exact same way as anybody else has been finding my own, my own path. So it was really good. It was a really good experience to try to do these vocal lessons and the, the maintenance side of them was invaluable. And I, could, I couldn't suggest more highly to singers anywhere of varying levels, a degree of success in their career. It doesn't matter if you're playing to 10 people a night or playing to 1,000, seriously. Learn your warm-ups, you know, like learn how to warm up your vocals and take care of them because, yeah, I've already at some points on certain tours lost my vocals. I had a hard time singing and it's like… That's scary. Yeah, it, it is. It's – um and painful, you know, and that's uh, – so, yeah, look after those vocal cords. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so from, from busking and jumping around from, from the Sunshine Coast, to Byron, the Gold Coast, how did things then unfold from then sort of to, to where you are now and, and playing at much bigger shows.
0: I think a really, why don't we use Sydney as an example? I think that's a really good being where we are, you know, being
1: in Sydney today is a really great. You actually told a great story about Sydney, which you might, when I was at your show recently.
0: Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, I'd love I'd love to tell that story, you know, because that's, I think, that's a, a valuable one. So I started in Sydney. The first place I played was in, I was in Surrey Hills. The first gig I ever played was at a pizza place on like a $10 pizza night. I was doing support for a friend I remember being really upset when I finished the show because it was just like a terrible PA and people actually came to see the show and it was like the worst environment you could play to people. And I was like, oh, you know, it was like a a frustrating experience even at, you know, seven, you know, 18. And I was like, gosh, like I wanted, and that really clicked. Those couple moments was like, okay, that's why I go into house shows and backyard shows because you could you might play to less people, but the quality of the experience and the connection you get is unparalleled. Um, So I started off this, this first pizza joint, I can tell you where it was. It wasn't, it was just, it was just a drinking pizza bar. Like it's, it's fine. It just wasn't a place for soft, emotional teenage boy music, you know? Uh, (laughs) And it started there. I then was doing house shows, you know, South Coast, Central Coast, um, around here, did a house show in Manly. Never done one in Bondi yet. But I did, maybe that's something we need to do sometime, right?
1: Um, we'll do it up on the roof. Perfect.
0: And <laughs> did a house show in Manly. That would have been 2014. I reckon then in Sydney, I jumped to some smaller venues like I kind of did. The next one was 100 people. And then the next one was 300 people. And then it was Oxford Art Factory, which would have been 2016. And then... Man, I've said this to a couple of younger artists lately, you know, who've asked kind of where did it start. It's It went from 50 people. Like those shows are so pivotal because the connection you make is unbelievable. You know, there was this one night in Sydney in Cronulla where I was due, set to play a show at a venue. They didn't have a rain option. It was maybe like 70 people, which is quite an awkward size because 50 people is manageable in a house. But 70 people and upwards, it starts to get like a lot of people to be in the living room. And it's a real party. And... <laughs> So I'm due to play this venue. It gets raining. They don't, have a, they don't have an indoor option. I was like, okay. I call my buddy Matt at the time. I say, hey, mate, like, can you help me out? He ended up being my tour manager for quite a while. And he goes, yeah, I'll call around. So we get a yoga studio. I was like, perfect, right? This is even better. And we set up in this yoga studio. Everyone takes off their shoes. Everyone's sitting on the ground. It's like a perfect vibe. About to start playing. The lady who owns it flips her lid, like after offering and saying that we could use it, flips her lid and says, like, if you don't get out in 15 minutes, I'm calling the cops. So, and I'm like gutted at this point I'm like right like here is the people trying to come see a show I've changed locations then they have come upstairs they're ready to hear hear me play and can't play so I'm going to get money out from the you know, cash cash machine down the road and to, to, to refund to refund people yeah, yeah. literally it was like I'm just literally going to get cash out and refund people you know that I maybe at the time used something like Eventbrite I was setting up my own events my, but you know maybe myself or friends were helping us get people through the door just tour. like
1: marketing through social media and
0: literally just through like Instagram I would yeah. set up house shows by asking if who could host a house show in these following
1: areas. It's pretty awesome.
0: It was really like super, like super, I don't know how quite to describe it. It was as community based involvement as you can possibly imagine in someone's career. Cause as example, when this happened, I go, guys, we can't host a show. I'm sorry. And someone pipes up from the back. We'll have it at our house. (laughs) Everyone looks around like, really? And like, yeah, it's two blocks over. And so people are like, Daisy chaining my gear down the stairs. I'm talking like pretty much everyone who's come to this show, bought a ticket to the shows, helping get the gear down the stairs. There's like random people in my van because it's raining, man. It's torrential rain. So people are like bunny hopping it into the van. There's people in my van helping put it in there. Everyone, we drive the van over. Everyone runs over down two blocks over into someone's living room. And we set up again and we finally play the show. And that for me was like, oh, the feeling. That's 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 a feeling of like... Wow, these people really got my back, and that's how I think—that's the honest truth of a lot of my early career, and even now, as much as numbers have grown, is that that was the basis that people, like I asked, and people would actually help, and that's like a pretty—that's a pretty cool community experience. That's a pretty—you look at you look in look at people and society in a really different way when you have that sort of stuff happening. Mm. I think the last show before this one at Roundhouse that we were just at was Enmore, and that was. Uh, Enmore Theatre and that was late 2017 and that was an an absolutely fantastic show. I mean, but it really went from that, like Roundhouse was a couple thousand people, you know, uh, Enmore was maybe 1,500 people and prior to that, maybe the biggest show we did prior to that was like, I feel like 800 people, like that's that's how the jumps have been over the years. It was literally 50 to 100 to 300 to 500 to... A 1,000. Yeah, yeah. It's and, and Melbourne, a very similar story. Like Melbourne was 50 people in a coffee shop, then 100 people in a cold backyard. It was like legitimately three degrees and then 200 people in a different backyard and it literally got to zero degrees. And then two nights at a small venue in Melbourne and then two nights at the Gov, which is like 800 cab, and then three nights at 170 Russell, which is 3,000 people across three nights, and then Palais Theatre, then... Bloody festival hall, like it's been incrementally over years, but
1: the man. work's been there. Like, what what I love like yeah. about that is for any you know aspiring artists that are listening to to see that you can sort of look at you now and look on social media, and it would be easy to to think that you you just had natural talent and just made it, and on social media became really big and popular, and started selling out festival hall, but. It wasn't too long ago that you were playing in someone's house in Cronulla, like <laughs> no, like literally a couple of years ago. And I think I think what's really important
0: about that, really really important, those two aspects is one, very few stories legitimately overnight success. Like they just they just aren't. They may look like it, but most of the time there's been years of of working really hard. And what I would say secondly is that. I do not envy people who have that amount of success more quickly than I have had. It's already been quickly for me, but if it took every every learned experience, every mistake, every show they've ever done to make me prepared enough to do Festival Hall or to do Roundhouse. Roundhouse was legitimately probably the best show I've ever played in my career. It was like the best I've given to a crowd, the crowd quality, our interactions. like It was probably the best show I've ever played. It's a, it was a benchmark night for me. And it's taken every single experience to be remotely prepared for that. And even, you know, Festival Hall, what I walked away with, learning after that show, mm. like how it's prepared me again.
1: Yeah, you're going to look back on that in, you know, four or five years' time or even a year's time. and
0: I just don't envy. I just don't envy it coming any quicker because that's like, that would just be so hard. You, you ha- you're you happy to have some experience when you get to that point. And also, you know, like maybe it's easy for me to say because I haven't hit a a plateau of my career in terms of it's being it's grown. That's all it's done so far. Whether it be slowly, without radio play, with radio play, it's just continued to grow. What I think, so maybe it's not maybe it's not my place to say, but I'm happy that there's still room to move. I'm happy that I'm not playing my biggest shows ever at 24. Wouldn't it be cool to be doing that a little later? Wouldn't that be cool to still have these new experiences? So I think, and plus, and like. The intimacy and the quality of shows that you get when you play to that magic number of fifty or a hundred people or hundred and fifty people, that you almost can't replicate that. You just can't. Like it's it's an experience you should want to have. It's it it's like no other feeling when you're truly sharing those moments with an amount of people that you can you can get it with each other. You know, that's that's so much more valuable than playing to a lot of people.
1: Do you do you ever wanna just walk down the road and start basking on the street? Yeah. I still I still do it you do it i I, in,
0: I, I mean yes absolutely because that's the simplest that's like a, a really pure simple form in the sense that it's it's not the logistics it's not these huge huge months leading up to shows it's you get your guitar out of your car help your friends you know pull some stuff out of the back of the wagon and set up a play and that's why in byron i still in byron bay I actually still do busk because it's you get that experience to people. You're on the street. There's nothing between you and the people, and that's wow. You know, like it's literally often when we're still busking now with friends. There's not. There's not even fold backs. There's not even speakers facing back you. So there's nothing between you and the people, and that's. So I, I plan. I plan. I hope I can still keep doing busking. What's it
1: like now when you when you're busking on the streets, like compared to two, three years ago? <laughs> I mean,
0: I mean, it's it's it, it's <laughs> hilarious because people are stopping and they're like, "I landed from Ireland today. I was hoping that maybe you'd be in Byron. And now you're playing. You're right here. Like." people just losing it, that it's even a possibility. But to the credit of a couple of years ago, I mean, there was nights that were just, just, you couldn't even, like nights where I'd be playing and it'd start raining. And I was like kind of undercover, but not undercover. And I just, again, being a madman would just keep playing. I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to stop playing for this weather. i would keep playing, keep playing. And I'm talking one night, people ran out of the cafe and started dancing in the rain. You think I'm joking, like it's a scene from a movie. And we had nights where there'd be like a hundred people in the car park outside a cafe dancing and going absolutely wild and singing at the top of their lungs. Like There was there was those moments. I think now it's just like I certainly wouldn't be like I post, if I'm going to do it, I'll post about it kind of 10 minutes before I'm about to start and there'll be a lot of people that will turn up. And then there's been a couple of times where I've bailed out because you're playing with friends and then to give them the right attention, I can't stand there next to the gear with my friends because then it's just on me and "Then there's been a couple of times where I've legitimately picked up my guitar and just walked off, <laughs> which is a different
1: experience to say the least." <laughs> now, in terms of the, your your actual music, is there are there any songs to to you that ha- that holds sort of greater importance in terms of the lyrics or the time that you release them? That's a great combination
0: of the importance and the time you release them. I'd say, I'd say, there's a song called "Simple Things" that I think was one of the first tracks that really, I found my sweet spot. I found a spot that was like really original to me. You know, you you have influences as a young artist. and I still have my influences today, but it was, it was my own song truly. And the honesty of the song, what it was about, and it was about, it was about the time I was in, it was busking and watching people walk past of all different sorts of life and sharing these moments with complete strangers and, and often meeting people with really similar value sets, which was really cool, you know, about caring about, the ocean and enjoying those experiences in a lifestyle. I thought I was really at that time falling in love with the East Coast because I was driving it so much and I was exploring all these little pockets by myself and I was on this real, you know, I was committed to music. And that was like this real finding yourself experience. And so that song that song then I think resonated with people really particularly. That song stood out. It was really nice playing it in Sydney actually. It's the first time I played it on the whole tour. So oh, I really? It in Sydney and that okay. was
1: is that something while you're touring, do you, you plan all the songs before you jump on stage or sometimes do you just feel like throwing something in there? We,
0: we plan them, but I do actually want to make an effort after that night to make an effort to play the odd song every now and then that I wasn't planning to play because it's, again, then it makes it a very unplanned experience and a very, um, I guess, honest one because it's it, you do have your flow of your night. You have to just to give people the, the right kind of show. But yeah, I look forward to doing it more. I think after Simple Things, was probably Runaway. That was the first song that actually stood out above. I felt like what I was really lucky with is that people listened to all the songs off my album. People were backed the whole album. It didn't matter. And that was what was cool. It was 50 people would come to the show, but they were singing most songs. And when you saw in Sydney that like, yeah. people there singing pretty much from start to finish. Yeah, like yeah. it's unprecedented. As an artist, you don't often have that. It's one and even the songs. older stuff. Yeah, yeah even the – just, you know, since so Runaway was one of those songs that – it wasn't even I I actually had it it was used in a surf out, and the reason that it was used in a surf out was because I was like, This isn't my best song. I was like, I'm gonna give him like a good song, but I don't wanna give him my 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 <laughs> like my best song. And then I released it and it became very evidently like the song that was most most clicked with people, which I thought was hilarious. Runaway was a real standout. I mean, Love Me Now probably was a standout because it was the first song that got heavily played on radio. Um, you know, last year was the it was the song that kind of mean it at festival hall, like like some of the guys on the team were genuinely covering their ears because that's how loud the singing was. Like the sound guys literally were plugging their ears because people were just belting it. So that song really sits out. And I think lastly and really importantly, Laps, Laps Round the Sun, the title track has, if anything, like even grown to be the most important song, which is really, you know, that's such a, that's a feeling because that's a really personal song and a song that's, you know, with a huge environmental message and the fact that in the scheme of, writing songs that would connect to people. That was a personal song that was kind of for me. And so the fact that that's become a song that's really been for everybody is like whoo, that's a pretty, um, a pretty special thing. I think it's a, telling, it's a telling of the times,
1: I think. Yeah, that people care. Yeah, right? I, and they, want,
0: uh, want songs that they can actually sing about that have some content yeah. that's, yeah. And
1: we're going to jump into the sustainability, I guess, in the ocean side of things just shortly and, mm. and i mean in that song you talk about ocean plastic and and things like that i saw take three uh, at the roundhouse yep i actually had take three on the podcast not not too long oh, ago, fantastic Silver, okay great. So we, we we chatted about you know ocean plastics microplastics and all that sort of stuff so it was great to see them at your event yeah quickly though before we jump diverse i guess into sustainability from the on the music side of things we touched on being independent at the start mm. What why did you decide to be an independent artist? And and what does that actually mean for anyone who's listening that may not have heard that term before? And how does it sort of compare to some other options that artists may have?
0: Really, really good question. Being independent is essentially is a kind of kind of a wide term, really, because there's there's massive independent labels. There's there's plenty of labels that are huge and have multiple artists that aren't major labels. Major labels is typically like one of your, you've got Universal, you've got Warner, and I should know more than this, but they're two majors, right? Okay, there we go. The big There's boys. The big boys, right, um, <laughs> who've been longstanding in various, you know, for various decades in various different fields. But being independent to me pretty much means like owning your songs, actually having full control and rights to your songs entirely. And that's what I sent. I guess in a sense when you're, signed in a traditional deal that you don't have. I mean, so I have, we set up an independent record label called Common Folk in 2017. Uh, we formed Common Folk Records and that was a step forward. That was kind of a big picture view for me. I did consider signing to, I mean, I, I considered signing to a couple of different major options that we had. There was a really cool independent one based out of North America. And then it was just a kind of what if, you know, could we keep doing this? Could we? Why, why can't we do the best job? Why can't we figure out how to do the best job, you know? And so the ethos became, it's mostly, maybe I'm just a control freak. Maybe that's it. Um, but it came down to having control over saying what you wanted to write, when you wanted to release it, the companies you want to work with, all those things start getting kind of blurry if you've signed a traditional major deal.
1: And that's a lot of that is your identity.
0: A hundred percent. And I mean, that's just so closely tied. And it's not, it's it's not innately wrong to be signed, you know, signed to a major, completely independent, signed to an independent label. Like none of, none of them are wrong. You just have to do what's right by your career as an artist. But for me, I think it's been right to make an example of you can be independent. And that mean, there's, there's plenty, there is examples you just have to look for them, you know, but to if you want to have a long, I think if you want to have a long-standing career, I think it's important to be involved in your career heavily in what's going down. And for me, the identity I and mean, just unparalleled. Like if I was, I just couldn't do it. If I had to write songs about stuff I didn't care for and work with people I didn't like and not have any say over that, that just wouldn't, it just doesn't sit with me personally. Therefore, I just didn't go down that road. And I'm really happy to be at least a question mark, at least people when they get to a point in their career and go, Will I stay independent? Will I sign to a major label? They can at least go, well... Here's a case study. Here's a case study because, I mean, like, look at someone like Chance the Rapper who's undoubtedly probably the biggest independent artist in the world in terms of, like, his impact and what he does and how far he's come in his career, who he's worked with. Like, he's that was for me. Like, I looked and I was like, he's independent. So why the bloody hell can't we try and keep working towards something like that? You know? And it's because you have to be half mad. That's a prerequisite. You have to be half <laughs>
1: mad to... So well, take yeah. take me through what was involved, and in you sort of just said we we set up Common Folk Record, but I'm imagining that there's quite a process there. You know, when you when you decided we're going to do this, what was next?
0: It was mostly growing the team and having the right people, because primarily at that time it was my older sister who was my manager and still is my manager, and my dad who was helping out on all accounts with you know with accounts and legals. And so it was then saying, okay, if you're not using somebody else's team, then we have to commit to growing our own. That was probably and is the most challenging part of it because we did, you know, we took on board um, my auntie, who's an absolute light of what we do and such a, such a powerful woman in, in her work. And we took her on and we're like, well, I hope we, have enough, hope we have enough hours. And then within three months, we needed somebody else. Like you just, we just, growth pains is what we face because forming the record label was also the time that released Love Me Now. Which got slammed on radio and then released another, you know, released Laps, which has, you know, also gotten slammed on radio and had, you know, a huge, a huge reach, released this world tour and 37 shows sold out on this Australian NZ leg before we started. And so it's just been a mad scramble. But to the credit of Annika and you know, to Kaiser, to Tim, to Ria, to the internal team who aren't on tour, that's been handled exceptionally well. And the tour team that we have grown for this tour has, again, handled everything exceptionally well. And I think for the most part, it's growth pains because if you're not going to employ other people to do the work like a third party, then you go got to do it yourself. It doesn't disappear. Mm. And that's been, that's been it.
1: And I guess there's a lot of risk. I mean, at the start when you're hiring people, making sure there's enough money coming in, overheads are going up. That's Absolutely. scaling. And are you – like when, when your song plays on radio or on Spotify – are you do you earn money from that, or is the main is the main source of income actually getting out on the road and playing in front of crowds?
0: It's incredible that we have access to music for the price we do now, and legally it kind of makes. Why why would you legally download anything now when it's so easy with Spotify and Apple? It's just no, there's not really a point anymore to illegal downloads. Yeah. Whereas when you were in an old school kind of setting, there was a lot of there was a much higher rate of illegal downloads of music, right? But What's come from that is the, I would say, the value has definitely changed. The, the literal amount that artists will make from, big or small, will make from their work has changed. And that is why you'll see, I can't say for sure, but I speculate, it's why you see every man and the dog touring a lot, every man, woman, and their dog touring a lot at the moment because touring has now become undoubtedly the backbone of your career. And I certainly, I mean, touring in Australia has is undoubtedly been what's made it possible to tour Europe, to tour America, because that's the other thing I think is really important about not belittling signing to a major label is that you might get loans. That's the whole point is that you get the potential to actually go and do those things because you don't have to save up that money yourself. And so you do. When you're independent, you take Mm. all the risk yourself you're managing all that cash flow yeah it's you know and you've so that's you know that's for sure but but like i prefer i'd prefer to be responsible like i prefer that we are as a, as our team at conflict i prefer that we are responsible for that because in music the biggest secret is is that nobody actually knows what the heck is going on it's moved so quickly the like the industry is growing so quickly in in so many different ways like how could you have forecasted the impact of streaming in the last decade you just couldn't like it just it just what it didn't exist a decade ago right so like it's changing so quickly your best bet is to is that you don't actually really know what's going on but you're going to give your best inkling of common sense and work hard that's pretty much i think the music industry at the moment
1: and and being a good performer a live a live performer
0: absolutely and and again that's like some people are studio artists and like that's Fantastic, but the live side of performing things, grueling as touring is, has been what is really personally satisfying and been, I'd uh, I'd argue, the most important part of my career, for sure.
1: At the at these shows, you spoke earlier about sort of nerves and, or more so, just getting yourself relaxed and having a tea. Are there other things that you do? Do you do any sort of mindfulness practices or physical activity, or do you get really nervous, like ever? I don't get.
0: Okay, so the Byron show, for example, where I felt most unsettled, it was the last show of tour, and like, as in, I couldn't even do the vocal warm ups in the back room. Like, it's just, it's a small venue, and it was like a very loud one, a fantastic venue, may I add. But for example, there wasn't one quiet space to meditate. There wasn't any space to stretch, and there wasn't. um, Certainly, it was loud enough that like, just I literally locked myself in the bathroom to try and do my vocal warm ups, you know, before the show. So that's kind of unsettling. As for nerve nerves, like crazy hard out nerves. Not so much because I've seen over the years that people just want me to go up there and be me. If I just, that's, that's what people want. So that's like a very comforting thing. But I for sure think the best nights I play is when I've done some writing or done some stuff that's outside of the performance where it's like another focus in the day. I generally like to do a bit of personal writing. And, you know, whether it's, whether it sounds ridiculous, but whether it's just focusing on the sides of the business, it does not just make it the one focus being on stage at the end of the day, you know, that being the only anchor. So doing a bit of stuff that's outside of playing the live show, when I do do my yoga routine, do exercises I've kind of got going, like got a pretty good routine at the moment. In the back room, when I do those and spend the hour or hour and a half doing that, that's always makes for an incredible show. You just feel better. And you've instead of you've been sitting all day, you've been in a car. So when you go and do that, you just any human being's gonna feel good. And for sure, I practice definitely meditations become a big part of touring, like a big functional part of touring and meditating before like these big shows even if it's for five minutes like that's yeah that's been really important it's particularly on the last tour i think's made a big difference
1: and you seem you seem very grounded for for someone that's 24 right 24 and playing in front of, you know such huge crowds have you have you ever been a big drinker or partier or an, and what what what's holding you sort of you know so grounded and 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 also you know speaking about such really important issues like the ocean and the, the Great Australian bite, which we'll go get into. But what like where's this this sort of ability come from to to keep yourself balanced?
0: I saw it would have been probably 2015 was one of the first times I I was playing Splendor. I was playing this little side stage, which was epic. I love playing all these hippie side stages at different festivals. And I was playing this side stage and I had this moment I've just been pushing it, like' as a probably reoccurring theme in my life is just pushing it too hard of touring, like just physically being too exhausted. and I remember being feeling like I didn't have a manager at this time out. I didn't have a manager or a booker or anybody at this time. like no, my sister was on board kind of thing. It was me managing myself, booking myself, driving myself, setting up the shows myself, everything right. And I remember going, Wow. I'm here playing to 200 people and nobody knows how lonely I am. It's like this real, like, whoa, okay, something needs to change. And so, hilariously, that was not not long after Anika became my became my manager, um, first you know like manager and tour manager, and then you know, slowly became just the manager. Now she manages everybody. But at that time, I got a manager. And I started to tour with people. Like you have and you have to you have to get it to a point where you can afford to do that, right? So there wasn't like another option, but. Once I got the opportunity, it's like, right, that's what I'm going to do. Get into a healthy exercise, you know, and make sure you're surfing as much as you can kind of routine, which I was, when you're really, really busy, as you well know, as we know, as young adults, like that does happen. Life, if you don't keep those things as a high priority, they do get put to the side. And I'd say the other pivotal moment I felt was I was doing that run of theater shows in late 2017. And I just didn't feel like I had much left to give to people on stage. Like I kind of was like, here are these people, they're here to see me. And I feel like a shell. Zapped. Just, you know, and so, and that's why, you know, 2018 I took 10 months off touring and I just learned really early on, I was really lucky to have a couple really awesome moments where I just knew that I could play the festival I could do this. I could have that. And if my internal conversation and if my time with family or having just normal, you know, like normal basic human requirements, which is good, healthy relationships around you, time out in nature, if I didn't have those things, it just meant nothing. I've played in front of a thousand people and it's meant nothing. And so that's been to be so young and to know that so clearly at those times was, you know, has shaped all, shaped so many of my decisions because I've been like, well, yeah, it'll be cool. It's cool to play festival hall. But not if I hate being on tour, then it sucks. And so it, I've always been really clear with myself that the amount of people I played to was a f- small part, an incredibly small part of what was what was my purpose. Hmm. It was about
1: that's incredible. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds like you've you've just been slowly peeling back the layers of getting to know yourself.
0: That's I mean yeah, I mean that's that's been music to me. It's such, so much about learning who you truly are and what you care about, and that's what you can do through music and through songwriting. This year was the first year in four calendar years that I've had a drink. Wow. Up until this year, I hadn't I hadn't had a drink in four years um, since 2015. So that was really hilarious. I've had two two nights of drinking since, and I can't say that I think I think it'll probably be four years till the next one. But I've got haven't got a plan with it. But it was it just I was never I could never drink much. I wasn't like I wasn't a particularly good drinker man. Like I was like a two or three drinks kind of drunk person. Like I was I was not like I wasn't keeping up with the boys' money part, right? And, <laughs> but I just thought and still think that it's hard enough to be on tour and be as healthy as I'd like to be. Like I'd love to be able to maybe it's a crazy, you know, a crazy idealist thing, but I would love to be able to come off tour and be fit enough to go surf big waves. Again, if I'll attain that every time I finish a tour, I don't know, but I want to be fit and healthy. It kind of comes hand in hand. Like you've seen the show, it's energetic. It's you have, I have to be present. I have to be energetic. I'm by myself on stage. I'm connecting heavily with the crowd. Like it kind of requires that, that much of me that drinking, I just didn't miss it because I think that often really, really when you break it down, a lot of those things that we do are to alter your reality for a moment, to yeah. get out of your reality. And so if you just change that reality a little bit, which I did change the way I was touring, the people I was touring with, my general health levels my fatigue levels i just didn't miss it i just didn't care to but the first drinks i had was the hottest 100 day i surprised everyone i came to the bar you know i just finished <laughs> i was playing a show that day and said to my friend i'm like you know if you're gonna get me a beer what would you get me and he was just there it was almost it was just such a laugh because some friends who have known for three years who have toured with for three years hadn't so much as had a beer with me so it was like this really hilarious night and um we'll see we'll see i, I just i can't imagine to be honest. I mean, I can't imagine drinking. I'm just not a drinking party yeah. kind of guy. Just it's just not really for me.
1: It's, I mean, and it's not for everyone. I, I, what What I like though is that it is a great example for anyone listening that is aspiring to be a musician because of that there there can be a bit of an association with playing at festivals and a lot of drinking. You
0: know what? That's actually I think that's actually something like you want all this. Like, I think it's really important, and maybe opportunities podcast. Like, I have. I've worked my butt off like, and chosen not to party, chosen to play the extra show, chosen to try and look after myself to the best of my ability at those given times to give everything at those shows. It wasn't an accident for sure. I've been lucky, but I've taken those lucky moments and I would attribute most of it to just having a work ethic, a work ethic that people just, you have to be mad to do it. But that's, that's a huge thing to not, I didn't party. I didn't drink. I didn't write myself off. And that's not because I'm above it. I just thought that it was of higher value to be healthy and to have to pursue these things in my life, for sure. And my dad would probably, if I was like, if I got into drugs, my dad would probably flog me. <laughs> he's done martial arts for many years, so I just I get beaten. <laughs> I've only beaten once or twice ever when we've had a fight. So
1: you you spoke just then about being present at the show and talking, and you do you talk a lot between the the songs, which I thought was great because it it, it offers something really unique to the people that come and and show up to the show. They get something more, you know, not only are they coming and enjoying you live, but they actually are walking away getting to know you, you know, at a deeper level. And one of the important things that you spoke about was the environment. Why is the environment important to you and, and is that something that's been important to you and sort of been instilled in you from your early sort of childhood ages?
0: I think just growing up. Surfing, like I was surfing before we could remember. That was like an, a a thing. That my parents thought was really important was that they spent time by the ocean. That's how they wanted. You know, we rented beach tracks along the ocean. That was the thing. We didn't do team sports or anything like that. It was we went surfing and we skated, kind of thing, right? And so that just really set me up for when I think probably the first time was when we had a poorly propositioned desalination plant that was supposed to go out the front and it would affect. The island that was at the front of the town that I grew up. It would affect the island. It would affect the wildlife. There it would also affect the quality of the water. This like, is
1: around all. Yeah.
0: And that was one of the first times that like I attended like a you know a community meeting about it and was like, no, nah, like that's that's just not cool. My parents, I wouldn't say they're innately like they're not your typical hippie or environmentalists at all, but they encouraged us to to learn as much as you can and to understand, to take on, to look at different perspectives. And so just across the years like i've been like I, I used to get like i used to get the takeaway starbucks like everyone's in a different learning state, right and but i think over the years have learned and gone okay and changed the habit learned this change the habit learned that you can through music bring people to attention of stuff what an incredible opportunity to be a musician to have to be unsolicited to not say be the most educated to not have the degree but to be able to have thousands of people where you could direct them to those said people who are educated who have the information that's it just doesn't feel good to be in the ocean when you can't. It doesn't feel good to be on a beach and see it covered in plastic. It doesn't feel good to be in the ocean and be picking up plastic out of it. It does, You know, there's an oil spill that affected the East Coast, you know, several years ago when we were growing up. And I remember not being allowed to go in the ocean because there was still too much oil and the way it smelled and the way it was on your feet. Like, it's, it just doesn't feel right. Like, yeah. on a really basic level, you just – would, you just would much prefer to be in environments. No nobody gets a kick out of going to the beach and seeing Siggy's. You Siggy know, butts everywhere. No one gets a kick out of being in nature and seeing various rappers and various different things being left behind. No one actually enjoys that. You know, and so for me, I value those places so much because they've inspired my songs. They are um, the natural places, the natural states of the world help me bring back, bring myself back to those natural the natural state. You know, when you go back into the ocean for several hours, you do, you come out different the world's a different place you know so it's important to have if anything is important selfishly for me to have those things when i'm not terrain <laughs> if anything it's a selfish endeavor that yeah you know, but it also happens to be a part of our lifeline so i think it's fine that it's a little selfish because it's a bit selfish for all of us really
1: in terms of your day-to-day practices you mentioned just then starbucks are there certain things that you sort of try and focus on just to do your part when it comes to sustainability I understand I think it's keep it
0: simple like I think it's simple actions that you can have the most impact on like one that's very obvious you know which you know in in Bondi and particularly east coast you know a a lot of part of the world's now is like having your keep cup if you can just have your keep cup. probably the thing that's been I'd say the most my most used and most pivotal and like it's the strangest one time I bought a plastic water bottle was when I was I was having allergic reaction to antibiotics so I was throwing up everything I possibly could and um, and we were, I was still having to play a show the following couple nights, so that's when we bought, you know, two two or three one point five liter bottles of water, you know, um, and that's when that's in like an you know, I was in a hospital when it's in a medical situation, that's okay, you can have that lenience. But aside from that, a water bottle, man, particularly now with the fact you can fill up your water bottle almost anywhere, incredible. I think having a water bottle has been one of the strongest things. Having a keep cup, there's still so many ways you can pull back your your impact just little
1: simple things
0: i think you start with the simple things because they're principle they're like right if i put in a touch more effort i mean i read this fantastic thing on a wall of a cafe saying it's amazing it's considered more convenient that we would pull oil out of the ground to then have it turn to get to get it to a factory to then manufacture it into a fork that then gets driven to a cafe then gets used for five minutes then gets thrown in the bin it's amazing that we consider that more convenient than bringing something of our own and washing it. And that was like a real.
1: Wow. Yeah. Cause it's not, it's, it's not convenient when you think about it. No. I mean, that everything's traveled.
0: And I think, I think though it's, it's important that it's like you start with those simple things because they open your eyes to it. Because once you do, and I've seen that with friends, particularly friends who are on tour, who just haven't necessarily had the peripheral vision for it, but now they have started using the keep cups or have been aware of some of the implications of, of various takeaway items it's an amount of everyone. You got to meet people where they can learn. Yeah, you know? we just want people that to start too. learning.
1: People get people start to connect more with it, and you know, start when you start with the plastic bag or the keep cup. Your consciousness goes up. You start becoming more aware, and look, then you look at other things that you're buying, and snowballs.
0: Uh, absolutely, and I think it's, I think it should be that principle is like learning how to to do a little less harm, and then all of a sudden it's like wow, because if you if that's the idea that you're just going to learn how to minimize your impact, that carries across. So, so many ranges. It's much more pragmatic Mm. to be able to look at something and go, it's an idea, like try to minimize your impact. Okay, well, you can apply that in so many areas of your life. You can apply it on where you buy your clothes, how often you need to buy your clothes, if you have a tote bag with you, if you need the plastic bag is another alternative. It just, Mm. you said it it snowballs.
1: I think a really important thing is it's not about being perfect, right? And we are, we're, we're born into this world that has become reliant on fossil fuels and yeah. there's plastic everywhere. So it's not about being perfect. And I think, you know, I flew down this morning from Burley yep. Heads, Queensland, down yep. to here to Bondi, right? So that's there's fossil fuels right there, right? But it's it's not about being absolutely perfect. And if we look at like a bigger issue, for example, the Great Australian Bite, which you've spoken out about. Yep. What, why is this important? Why, what's going on down there? And why is this of significant importance in terms of just getting the, A, the public more aware about what's going on yeah. and B, trying to stop it? What you touched on then
0: was really great that it's about if you can do it most of the time in terms of that you're not going to have a 100% rate. You can't consider yourself either I'm not going to attempt it or it has to be every single time we have to have middle ground and there has to be like when i talked about it, when i got plastic bottles because i was just so sick that there was just not another option right that's a really important one i like as well how you touched on that you have to be honest and i sat on stage i'm like here i am i've got a carbon footprint that's much bigger than most individuals will ever have i've got a guitar that's cut down from wood and i've got strings that are metal that have been pulled out of the ground i think where it's important is to look where you have alternatives I think that we need to be less hard on, for example, when at the moment, there's not electric airplanes. It's just there isn't a technology yet. At the moment, the best way to run airplanes at the moment is fossil fuels. Sorry, I know it's hard to accept, but it truly is. It's like the most pragmatic thing we've got right now. There is other options in how you buy your clothes. There is other options in, in how you, again, on little levels, look for, don't give yourself a hard time where there is isn't an alternative. Look to where you can make a difference where there is an alternative, an alternative product, an alternative way of doing things. And the Great Australian Bite. That's uh, why is it important?
1: Let's let's start yeah. with where it is. Yeah, okay, it's, fantastic. There's yeah. a lot of international listeners. Perfect. Yeah, no,
0: that's a really good state, place to start. The Great Australian Bite is a huge expanse of coast and land that kind of covers from South Australia to Western Australia. I've driven the Nullarbor three times so far. It's a fair drive. It's the longest straight you were driving to kind of get from one of the the last towns really to the next town is kind of three eight to 10 hour days of driving for people who are on the other side of the world and unaware of the geography. Look up the Great Australian Bight. It's this huge expanse of incredibly rugged, just, I mean, colossal cliffs dropping off into the ocean, like, and oceans, I mean, the surfing down there is crazy, you know, and wildlife and a sea that's super vibrant, that's very, um, that is quite healthy, that's home to a huge industry of fishing and tourism, uh, Great Australian Bight is kind of one of our really untouched places because it is just it is like pitting yourself against it as man is hard work it is the storm systems it's just a wild place truly really, and it's very i think it's really of national importance to Australia as a very wild huge open expanse of land and sea kind of thing you know the Great Australian Bight right now is and has been for many years under threat of drilling hilariously i don't know what the correlation is i don't know, i don't know the scientific correlation but it seems where there is a place that is vibrant with let's say vibrant with a super healthy ocean you know um, with huge fish stocks for example if you want to say caught fish stocks like those same places usually have really great oil deposits i don't know what the correlation is but usually That's a really interesting you see it maybe because you know, so this norwegian company is the most recent uh, energy company to apply for deep sea drilling in the great australian bite now Interestingly, spending a lot of time in Norway, my ex girlfriend is Norwegian. So I spent even time up in the Lufthansa Islands, which is for our Scandinavian uh, listeners, it's, I mean, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's crazy. And they've just decided to, as the Norwegian people, to not drill up in that area, to keep it for A, for its tourism, B, for its fisheries, and just for it being one of a really wild, untouched, beautiful place um, that's really of national importance. So the Great Shining Bay and surrounding coast is some of our biggest most important contributors to, to our fisheries and to our tourism industry. Like it is of a huge passion. And I say that almost, I know it sounds crass and again, like overly pragmatic, but I'm saying that firstly, they're drilling as deep deepest people have ever tried to drill. So the BP horizon spill that happened in the Mexican Gulf, like that is a calm sea. When I've served, like, I mean, you just, you just have to, you almost just have to go and look at pictures. You have to go there and see it for yourself. The sort of oceans and and the storms they are subject to along that coastline are like something we often don't even see here on East Coast. They are unparalleled huge storm systems. So to try and claim that there is any level of that you have any level of say that you can safely drill in an ocean like that is a falsity. It is just simply inaccurate. And so this company that wants to try and drill as deep as they've drilled before ever in the Great Australian Bite risk up to four. Coastline four states of coastlines in Australia stretching from Esperance through to Port Macquarie, which isn't a sci- it, it, it isn't that isn't our that isn't our oil spill projection. That isn't an, that is the projection made public in the application by the company.
1: If there's a spill, this is this is like the minimum damage that'll be
0: yeah. Awesome. This and you, you're going to presume they're going to want to they want to give the minimum. They're going to, want to give like the other maximum. So they're saying from Port Macquarie and if again if you and as, and as Australians listening, Port Macquarie to Esperance is. it's 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 as it's more of the coastline i thought that could even possibly be affected but that's what's so crazy is with that side of the coastline with the currents that pour through there with just the way that ocean is it will stretch that far and that would this is what gets to me outside of like you know like the economic argument which is entirely valid the environmental argument which is entirely valid even if someone under goodwill or honest Practice think they can clean up a mess like that. It's just not possible. Like it's just not, you know. And that's what's that's what's hard because it's just if you you only need to go look at that coastline for a second, particularly the most affected coastline for a second, and the the reason why there isn't houses there, the reason why there isn't docks there, there isn't shipping ports there, is because it's too wild.
1: So I imagine, I mean, if there's a spill there, it would be how how are people going to access it?
0: You just, I mean, the the capping the capping block to, to block a leak. Essentially, the equipment to do that is kept in Singapore. That's and their projection is it's 15 days to get there. So within that 15 days, the amount that that would affect. I just gen, I'm saying I genuinely there isn't technology that can possibly protect an oil spill in that sort of area. I'm not I'm not, I'm going to be so pragmatic as to say that there is calmer seas around the world where you could practice drilling more safely. I'm not con, I'm not suggesting you do that. I'm saying there is literally areas that are much more a way lesser probability of an oil spill happening i just it's of scientific evidence that the bite is one of the most high risk areas you could drill in terms of an oil spill it is one of the most high risk areas you could drill in any ocean
1: sounds like the the australian government could could look at norway and and look at what they've done with their own their own and and, (laughs) in terms of protecting them
0: Oh, and it's—I mean, I talk with—I talk with a Norwegian surf community called you know um, Surf Norge. They do this like they're like essentially like the surf mag and the surf surf voice of Scandinavians. And I explained to them, I was like, "That kind of is like our Lofoten. That is like our Lofoten Islands. It is the home of a huge amount of tourism. It is our wild place." And Norwegian people, um, again, having pretty close ties to a lot of a lot of parts of Norway and, and traveling a lot of country, they're so adamant about protecting their nature. It's a part of their a part of their actual legislation in government to leave a place better than you've you've come onto it. Like they have a huge respect for their environment, which is why now with huge oil deposits up in Lufferton, they've decided to not drill. So even that should be a marker that they've decided to not go ahead and do that. So then to come and do it here, I mean, what I think needs to be made aware so that the general public, outside of, I mean environmentally, 85% of the species are found nowhere else in the world that you find in the Great to that area. Enti- entirely yeah. native to that area. It is home to one of the deepest reefs in the world. It is, you know, it's got the Great Southern Reef. It's a pre- protected marine park.
1: It's, an, it's a protected marine park.
0: Yeah, but I know. An, try and really mean that. It's a protected marine park. It's home to you know—home to a, a nursery for a lot of different endangered species. So environmentally, the arguments there, the fact that it all would affect not only that area, but all the Great Ocean Road into the southwest of Western Australia, all the way past through Tasmania, all the way around the corner, you know, down the south coast, all the way through to Port Macquarie, past Sydney, maybe add, you know, like environmentally, there's all the arguments that stand, but even on a level where $117 billion per annum in fisheries and tourism combined is what we earn. It's incredibly great for the Australian economy. It's circular, it employs local people, it's the lifeline to a lot of the different towns and places we have. Tourism is incredible because it's, you know, a low impact industry. So you risk four states worth of that pool. Of Australian economy of thousands and thousands thousands of jobs so I just think that people need to care legitimately on not just environmental level this is also something that be cared about for the sake of the Australian economy of our economy that a part of it that does help with our stability that is employing is truly employing Australians I think which is why I am excited that it is because a lot of a lot of arguments are just environmental and that should be enough because On this podcast, particularly, you get that right. Like that should be enough. But I love that at least with this argument, there is a huge economic impact, Mm. and that will have will resonate with other people. Will resonate with people outside of the environmental concerns, and that's gonna we're gonna need everyone's hands on this. You know.
1: So, what is the process? What when is there a date where the government will make a decision? And if people are listening and thinking, "Wow, what can I? What can I do? How how can people help?" So, the
0: twentieth of March is the the date that public commentary is allowed onto. They have thankfully released a document, if I can, if I pronounce it correctly, NOPE Center, who are like the governing body that approve and disapprove these drilling applications, they will have public commentary until the 20th of March, which is just a couple of days away. Um, and you can comment against the actual document. I've, I've just recently put up a post that may actually highlight on, on my page on a couple of key points of why I am opposing this application. Places like Greenpeace have this opportunity on their website as well. Patagonia are doing a huge part. Basically, I think the most important thing is don't just share it. What's going to count is calling. For example, if you called your local office and said, this is of importance to me, what's going on with this, and make it a conversation to politicians, they care about signatures. They care about phone calls. They care about letters. There's an
1: election coming up.
0: And it's going to literally weigh on, it's going to weigh on that. If it becomes a national topic, it will become a part of the play. And again, we've got to play dirty and that's going to be a good thing. I think importantly, comment on Instagram if you want against like Equinor's page, but I don't think it's nearly as effective as actually taking the five minutes to comment against the document because I think there's actually going to be an unprecedented amount of public commentary.
1: So is there an actual document that people need to fill in or they just comment on there's a, social media there's
0: a document that you can you can find the link through my page or if you look if you go into note sam's you know application you can go on to so i just i want to direct you to greenpeace to like patagonia to my page i'll put
1: the link to your page and fantastic. all of these other ones in the show notes. and
0: i'll exactly i'll give you the link to the actual document so you basically got to fill out you know, your name your last name um hope they don't take your address and then <laughs> they've got options you can comment against each section or you can leave other comments i'm encouraging people to at the very least leave another comment i've listed my general concerns, which are truly that isn't like an inaccurate environmental consultation. No stakeholders have been made aware it risks parts of Australian jobs. Like I've kind of gone for the most pragmatic that is going to get people listening.
1: Yeah, okay, great.
0: And you know, and so um that's what I think is going to be effective because I think that we're in a time and maybe I don't know if you agree, but we're in a time where people do care and a lot of lot of noise, a lot of dust is kicked up, but it doesn't necessarily translate into an area that means something in political climate. And that's what we need to try and do is get people get the political climate, you know, ears up and realizing that Australian people and a worldwide community are not interested in this. It's not it's just not a part even remotely of a transition into renewable energies. It's not even a small picture of that. And we need to, you know, giddy up as Australia, particularly, mm. we need to get towards that. I
1: you know? completely agree. Cause it's very easy just to to share something and build the awareness, but this needs people to actually take that five minutes and fill in that application or comment.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, and I had this conversation with, you know, a conversation with my father who's, you know, it's really great debating with him. And he's like, just for the sake of it in terms of to see where there's holes in your argument. And I think that even in the sense, so look, we are transitioning. This is not going to happen overnight. We can't just jump to renewables. We have become reliant on it. But we are consuming as all around the world, we are consuming more of our Unrenewable fossil fuel energy, then we can keep up with. Therefore, that regardless of how much of it we keep pulling out of the ground, there is still going to be more demand than there is product. And so it's going to continue to get more expensive. So, as it is, if we want to, as individuals, as if we want to, even as people who are driving fossil fuel cars for the next X amount of years before it becomes accessible to have greener cars, for example. We, as whole countries and as around the world, need to transition into renewables just for the sake of this period so then it doesn't become impossible to drive said cars, so then you, so we can truly transition in a way that's realistic. I mean, it'd be lovely to change it overnight, but we're not going to be able to. but at this rate, there's no amount of fossil fuels we can pull out of the ground to sustain what we're doing. So we've got to get smart, we've got to actually move to an energy that is sustainable. <laughs>
1: When it comes to using social media and as a platform, right, and you're using it incredibly to speak about issues like this, the Great Australian right, big sustainability issues. Do you yourself do you like social media? What, what are what are some of the positives or negatives that you've experienced with using it? I think you know in this day and age, there's there's always that ba- battle of being able to balance it. You know, using it to its strengths because it has obvious strengths, but then obviously also not being letting it take over your life. Oh man, what's the what's the struggle? I think something's come up in
0: topic a lot lately: human connection. Think like, for example, like we can have a conversation; you can look me in the eye. That's becoming less common. Like when our communication is hugely engaged in online or app form or just a digital form you just you get good at what you practice don't you you get good at at communicating in those forms and so i think it's really i mean wow what a, at least wow look at look at me as a person i feel like because of my homeschooling because of just my age i still could see both sides like i had the i had the Nokia you know i had the Nokia brick and it was yeah, great yeah, yeah. you know it
1: was a great thing that was a big boy
0: lasted a long time run, <laughs> and
1: never ran out of battery and no, that had snake that had snake
0: had snake on it yeah yeah it was the gift of the world it was, it was great perf- it was the peak it was the peak performance of phones do you remember when snake, still phones went
1: from snake one to snake two and you could go through the wall <laughs> do you remember that
0: yeah like, <laughs> I mean yeah so it's a great time to be alive and um <laughs> I think you what you touched on then the challenge is to like anything that's powerful and you have to admit social media so, social media is innately powerful in a pure sense but to use it for good and to connect people and to perhaps as you're doing here, bringing these conversations together to a wider audience. That's all you can try and do is you can, you've got to use it for good. And that's pretty much like the common theme of humanity is we get things that are powerful. And there's this look at, look at movie narratives, look at the reality is that you constantly seeing this balance of using it for, for good and bad, so to speak, or it using you for good and bad. And so I think I'm always trying to be on it within myself, mostly with my personal practice of how I use my phone or how I communicate and how much I use it. That's something I just think most personally that everybody needs to look out for. And I certainly feel like I need to. Otherwise you catch yourself looking at videos of screaming goats and you're like, why am I here for three hours looking at screaming goats?
1: Yeah. You okay. just get stuck scrolling.
0: But you can, you can do, and that's, it's been made possible to be independent as a musician. It's been made totally possible. It's been possible to have these conversations because of social media has been made possible, or at least have a platform for them to be heard on a greater audience. That's
1: I mean it's given people control, you know, giving people control back that, you know, and almost taking a bit of control away from major media.
0: I, I just absolutely because there's like an unsolicited, you can't stop that many this many people posting about an issue. It's just not possible. You can delete some comments, but you can't pull down everyone's Instagrams at this point. You know, like that's not possible. So my view on it is. I think probably similar to yours, you've got to use it for as much good. And for me, the value of it is almost completely independency to how much reality you create from it in terms of if you can, and I have plenty of awesome stories of social media is connected to people. And then I'm having a surf with a family, you know, with mom and dad and the two kids who happen to be in the lap Around the Sun video, you know, and I get to meet them. And then all of a sudden we become friends. And it's like this so I think that the value of it is almost entirely weighed in the reality, it's like the good you create in reality from it. And there is that to be done. And that's what I hugely believe in with music. And you just have to I talked about this actually a day with a guy called Ash Grumwald. It's We've never been faced with the issue of dependency, never been faced with it so close to home, literally in our pockets, like every part of the day. But with every challenge, we have the opportunity to properly address it. So we, we face a dependency thing right now. And it's going to teach us a lot as multiple multiple generations. It's teaching me a lot.
1: And I so think- true. I mean, like it is. It, it can it can be, and it would be a, a, essentially an addiction for a lot of people, right?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and you can't, and you can't. It's not lack of individual strength. They are designed to be addictive. It's designed to be encompassing. It's not designed to just be a hop on 100%. hop off.
2: Like
1: these Instagram's got people working around the clock to try and. <laughs> Should try and keep you scrolling.
0: <laughs> I mean, something I wrote down last year was exploring is completely different to scrolling a feed of people's photos based on things you've already previously liked. So you have to differentiate, you have to differentiate it from an incredible thing we've got like social media and make sure that you're still having your quality family time, your time out in nature without your phone, getting a switch off time. That's our challenge right now, a switch off time. I personally feel for my life anyway.
1: Mm, sure. Beautifully said. Now... Parting note: How would you like to be to be remembered as as an artist, but also as a as a as a person?
0: Wow, how would I like to be remembered? Jeez. it's more like how I'd like to be known off stage. You know, how how is how is your value set? I think I'm not a fan of people being incredible writers, incredible performers, incredible musicians, incredible actors, and being a poor human outside of that so I just would like to strive to try and practice being a good human outside of outside of being on stage because it doesn't count for much if you hop off stage and you're you know and you're not doing doing anything particularly good for your family or your friends or the world so that's uh that's how I'd like to remember just for how I was known not just for what I looked like on stage
1: well, mate it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story I'm sure it will by many of the, the listeners so I really appreciate it no thank you for
0: having an opportunity there's some of these topics that I have never had the chance to like speak on in long form and so to have that today and to have you know to share the conversation with you is a real treat I really appreciate it
1: I look forward to uh, getting you back on the show in a couple of years time when you're no doubt selling out 20,000 people crowds and whatnot
0: <laughs> yeah we'll see how it goes then we
1: could, we'll have, maybe we'll see how
0: the chat goes then hey for sure
1: cheers mate thank you wow Ziggy Alberts, what a grounded, humble fella, and only 24 years old. Somehow, I think we have only seen the beginning of Ziggy's career. I can't wait to see the music he brings out in the future and also the effect that he has on his growing community. He's really fast become one of Australia's leading young role models. If you enjoyed this episode, Ziggy and I would love to hear from you on social. Whack up a story and tag us so we can hear what you thought. And friends, don't forget to jump over to Equinor's Instagram at Equinor, E-Q-U-I-N-O-R, and tell them what you think about their proposed drilling in the Great Australian Bite. And check out the show notes for links to more information about their drilling plans and what you can do to express your opposition. Time to sign off. Have a beautiful day wherever you are. Thanks for tuning in. See you in the next episode.
2: Do you see the ways that we've grown apart? I don't like it at all. Do you see the ways that we are going too far? Drifting off of our course and Do you see the ways that we let plastic cover the ocean like snow But snow it always melts With the seasons change And the summer is up and months go Water warm as all before Oh how much is left to learn Lately I've been worried I don't know where to It is that I do belong. Lately, I've been too busy to smell the bottle brushes chasing laps around the sun. And I sat here and cried, so running from my eyes, wondering how the fuck will I end up with you? And you just laugh and smile, shake your head, and remind me that all good things can come true. How much is left to learn? Do you see the ways we've gone too far? We need now more than ever before to come together, put our differences apart, stop drifting off of our course. Do you see? We need our reefs just like trees along the shore And if it knows to help the half we'll of breathing for ourselves Out of our sight and on the ocean floor Oh, how much is left to learn Lately I've been worried I don't know where to wait That I do alone With a bottle brush, just and laps around the sun, and I sit here and cry, up from my eyes, just wondering how the fuck will I end up with you? And you just laugh and smile, shake your head and remind me that all good things can come true. Oh, how much is left to learn? I say, oh whoa. Just left to learn I said, whoa, whoa, how much is left to learn